On this season, we'll be covering our vehicles of hysteria, how pop culture and the media shape our psychology and society, and how our national mythologies manipulate the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Dayton, Tennessee high school teacher is to be tried for teaching evolution of man from monkeys popularity. What is it made of? I don't know what it is, but there's something about it you like. Ole. Elaski. Elaski. You think you could teach me something? Hmm? Please, I got, please. I got, I got something just for you, bro. Oh yeah. Oh, good, just good. for you. Just. Oh, go for ahead. Me. Go ahead. You may remember some variation of this scene. It's early autumn and you're in elementary school learning about the history of one of your favorite holidays, Thanksgiving. Maybe you're placing your hand, fingers spread wide, on a clean white sheet of paper. Like chalk outlining a body, you use a brown crayon to follow the outside of your hand. When you pull it away, you draw a little beak where the thumb once was, little dots for eyes, and a scribbled waddle under the throat that makes you laugh. Kids are divided into pilgrims and Indians, some with Puritan paper collars and others with a paper headband and a paper feather that you can color however you want. Your imaginary turkey and beside it a colored-in cornucopia take on a great significance. They are a symbol for the day that the colonizers and the colonized ate in reverent harmony, happy now to share together this great and beautiful land. Like so many, come February, I would hear the same story that I heard every year of a simple, heroic, gentle, but firm reverend who used nonviolent protest to soften the hearts of a misguided America. Of course, I always remembered those words, I have a dream, and to a room full of mostly white suburban kids, it seemed to smooth out a troubled and complicated past for us without making anyone uncomfortable. In fact, we were taught that this dream had already come true. All of that was a long time ago. All of that is history. Just as we see today, American public school has always been a battleground between an ever-evolving progressivism and a staunch religious retrograde conservatism. But it's a lot more complicated than that. In this episode, we'll look at the evolution of public school, the long-term evolutions of its curriculum, and the angry panic and national drama that it keeps producing again and again. You'll hear clashes about the Bible, evolution, black anti-literacy laws, Indian boarding schools, anti-commie patriotism, good suburban morals, multiculturalism, and a radical public television show called Sesame Street. As the nation grapples in a new culture war over this pesky thing called history, we hope to illuminate, as we always do, that history is complicated, messy, tragically incomplete, but also one of the most powerful tools to shape our present American reality and even to control our future. 
defendant John T. Scopes, Dayton, Tennessee high school teacher, is to be tried for teaching evolution of man from monkeys, despite a Tennessee law forbidding instruction in this doctrine. Threatened issue, according to defense attorneys, was the right to teach what science had found factual. But the prosecution insisted it was the Bible that was on trial. In the 1920s, evolution was the word on everyone's lips as Darwin's theory rocked the foundations of science and spirituality, making Americans question their very connection to God. As you might imagine, the idea that people could have descended from apes was not well received by the general population. In 1925, a new law passed in the state of Tennessee, making it illegal to teach, quote, any theory that denies the story of divine creation as taught by the Bible and to teach instead that man was descended from a lower order of animals. The Butler Act was one of many anti-evolution laws passed in the early 1920s as part of a national movement most vocally championed by former Secretary of State and three-time presidential nominee, devout Protestant William Jennings Bryan. Enter the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, who decided to take up the cause, as they often do, running newspaper ads offering free representation for any teacher consciously breaking that law. Perusing the morning paper as usual, a Dayton, Tennessee businessman named George Replaya had an idea. He gathered up a group of town leaders and they started scheming a dastardly deed in their secret lair, the town drugstore. Sure, George Replaya believed in evolution, but more so, he knew that this was going to be hot, 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 truly a juicy media spectacle. The group believed that the trial would bring national attention and fame to their small town of Dayton, Tennessee, which had fallen on some pretty hard times. They called up a man named John Scopes, a 24-year-old substitute teacher and football coach at Rhea County High School, who had recently substituted for the school's biology teacher. I think of him as a kind of Forrest Gumpian character, and John Scopes didn't even know what the theory of evolution was, but when George explained that the existence of biology class meant that he was teaching evolution by default or something like that, John just shrugged his shoulders and said, I guess I am teaching evolution. But things got real specie spicy when that famous Butler Act champion, William Jennings Bryan, became the prosecuting attorney. Not long after, mega-famous bombastic lawyer Clarence Darrow jumped at the chance to spar against Bryan in the courtroom. And so it began, the great American spectacle known as the Scopes Monkey Trial. The prosecution centered mainly on the outrage of the mere consideration that men were not forged from holy clay by the fatherly hands of God, but instead evolved from dirty apes. The twist of the knife, as William Jennings Bryan said, was that if evolution won this trial, the new textbooks would claim that humans were, quote, not even from American monkeys, but old world monkeys. A prayer was scheduled to start the trial. The defense objected, and they were overruled. The dangerously packed courtroom all bowed their heads. 
And then a stream of former students would testify about just what they were being taught. A zoologist would give a court lesson in Darwin's theory to a slanted jury of local religious middle-aged farmers. And then Brian would be put on the stand and grilled about biblical fact, which he bombed tremendously. It was painted by both sides as a battle between good and evil, truth and ignorance, a battle that the defense really wanted to kick up to the Supreme Court. Outside the courtroom, there was a flood of thousands of people trying to get a look at the proceedings, and the judge worried that the building would literally collapse with so many jammed inside, tried to move the trial to an outdoor tent that would seat 20,000 people. Across the nation, people tuned into their radios to hear the first-ever trial broadcast live. On Dayton's Main Street, there were banners declaring passionate opinions. There were food stands and lemonade stands, and the story of chimpanzees testifying at the trial brought thousands to watch them perform instead at a sideshow set up on the side of the road. The trial would end in favor of the prosecution, in favor of the Bible, and the bewildered John Scopes would be fined $150 before going back to his simple life. But nonetheless, these drugstore spectacle architects sure got what they wanted. Their town was definitely on the map now. A new precedent was set that would spread across the South, and in Texas, the governor ordered that any textbooks still containing information on the topic of evolution would have their sections cut out by students with scissors. Oh, and William Jennings Bryan also mysteriously died just two days after John Scopes was found guilty. At this point, like I was, you may be rooting for science and reason to prevail over superstition and belief that has so poisoned our culture. But if you would have been part of this progressive battle at the time, made up mainly of white people since people of color were barred from public school, it is not unlikely that you would have also supported eugenics, the idea of creating a perfect America through, essentially, the right kind of breeding. Though William Jennings Bryan was clearly a devoted Christian man, historians have never really categorized him as a fundamentalist. He was actually a mildly socially conscious politician, seriously against the concept of eugenics, actually concerned about the potential harm done to oppressed racial groups and those living in poverty. He wasn't wrong. One of the textbooks presented at the trial, called A Civic Biology Presented in Problems, stated in no uncertain terms that of the five human races, white people were, quote, the highest of all. But William Jennings Bryan was also a huge supporter of the oppressive Jim Crow laws at the time and was interested in further disenfranchising black Americans and keeping the races separate to prevent racial mixing. History is complicated. Until 
found only grief, for they would not let their old religion go. Now, let's go back and visit our old friends, the Puritans, who, surprisingly, were strong supporters of public education, but for one reason and one reason only. Literacy was strongly valued because without it, people could not read the Bible. The old deluder Satan act of 1647, referring to the ease by which the devil could reach the illiterate, set in place laws that required sizable towns to have an organized system for schooling. The first widely distributed American textbook came in 1687, called the New England Primer, which taught reading comprehension as well as moral lessons, complete with these really cool woodcut prints. You should go look at them. It was partly made up of the first children's book in America, which came over from England and was called Spiritual Milk for Boston Babes in Either England drawn out of the breasts of both testaments for their soul's nourishment, but may be of like use to any children. Fast forward all the way to the 1830s, when tax-supported public education was becoming a more organized movement, with an influx of immigrants with varying religions, especially Catholic ones, the system was slowly secularizing itself, focusing less on God and more on a routine curriculum that would prepare the almost exclusively white male youth to become model American citizens. Horace Mann was a believer in religious equality in schools of this new secular model, and after he was voted in as secretary of the Massachusetts State Board of Education, he helped create a smattering of what he called common schools in the Northeast, which brought us the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. He was a man of strong belief, and first and foremost, he was fighting for these progressive changes in education. But a close second was this. He loathed the idea that children were learning the individual letters of the alphabet, the ABCs, rather than the words as a whole, stating that the method was, quote, repulsive and soul-deadening to children. He then described the letters of the alphabet as skeleton-shaped, bloodless, ghostly apparitions. But this whole religious diversity, multiculturalism thing was not everyone's cup of tea. And there were enormous upheavals around what else but the Bible in school. Just because the common schools were more secular, Protestantism still reigned supreme. The tens of thousands of Irish Catholic immigrants who were coming into the Northeast had not been well received by the Protestant establishment. The King James Bible had long been the required morning reading for common schools, but there was a vocal movement by Catholics that the schools allow students to read from their own version. The simple request caused a chain of conspiracy theories to gather into massive, violent storms when the story changed from a simple request to a secret plot by the Pope and his evil secret organization set to eliminate Protestants altogether by forcibly removing all King James Bibles from all American schools. 
This was, of course, not something anyone was trying to do, but the story fit in with the anti-immigrant sentiment that had been boiling over into a movement of white patriots known as nativists that were actively growing in number by spreading this fake news themselves. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. And now back to the show. And then in 1844, a series of bloody riots carried out by the nativists devastated the area. The feds were called in as Catholic churches were burned and hundreds were wounded or died in raucous shootouts, with thousands left homeless after their homes were destroyed. The inflamed nativists were fist-fighting Catholics and their allies in the street. People were stabbing each other with knives and broken bottles, swinging heavy chains as weapons, shooting each other and the cops. At one point, someone wheeled the cannon out into the street and fired at the nativists, and then the nativists commandeered it and fired it back at the church. It was complete and utter pandemonium. The nativists denied their role in the whole thing, and though city officials acted as if they deplored the violence, they asked both sides to remain peaceful, and then a grand jury officially blamed the riots on, quote, efforts of a portion of the community to exclude the Bible from public schools. There were other controversies, too, not around what was being taught, but rather who was allowed to learn. Educational systems for the enslaved population were almost non-existent, at least those that the plantation owners knew about. It was in South Carolina that the first laws were officially on the books, the Negro Act of 1740, which prohibited education for enslaved and free black people. Reading was allowed so that they could be taught Christian beliefs, but more so because of the extra tasks they would be able to complete for their captors. But writing was strictly banned, precisely because of a recent slave revolt called the Stono Rebellion, led by a man named Jemmy, 
who could read and write and thus share abolitionist materials. And so politicians saw this, education, as the main threat to their elite white supremacy and the free labor they relied on. The laws ramped up even further in the wake of the historic revolt led by Nat Turner in the summer of 1831 that caused an extreme white panic, which we cover in detail in our episode called Monsters. This revolt in particular shook the planter class to their core, and Virginia abolished every black school and forced all the teachers to leave the state immediately, quote, and never more return. At minimum, states that had allowed free black kids to actually attend school with their white peers, which did happen sometimes, kicked them out and created fines or jail time for whites caught educating and public whippings for the black educators. By 1836, the public education of black people was prohibited nationwide, and any schools that didn't abide were destroyed by mobs. But just as important as talking about the history of the laws prohibiting Black education are the stories of the ways that enslaved and free Black people fought to teach and learn anyway, covertly, tactically, and at a great risk to their own safety. After the first wave of anti-literacy laws were passed in the mid-1700s, secret schools still operated, and enslaved children hid their learning by writing their ABCs in the dirt so that they could easily be erased in case anyone came around. Free Black kids would hide their books by wrapping them in newspaper and carrying them in baskets covered with other items, taking winding routes to their school, which also held special hiding places where they could go during raids. John Barry Meacham was born into enslavement in 1789, growing up in North Carolina and then Kentucky. After spending much of his life working in carpentry, he was able to save enough money to buy his freedom. And then, through working in a salt pepper mine at the age of 21, he purchased the freedom of both his father and his wife, Mary, and eventually several other enslaved people as well. After moving to St. Louis, he helped create the first black church in Missouri, and there he taught free classes to hundreds of black kids, along with his partner in crime, white Baptist minister and ardent abolitionist John Mason Peck. After that second round of anti-literacy laws, they were forced to stop teaching in the state. But then, as the story goes, John Meacham got creative. With help from his co-minister, John Meacham used his long background in carpentry to construct a large steamboat and then anchored it in the middle of the Mississippi River. Why, you ask? Because this river was not Mississippi state property, but instead federal property, and there were no federal laws on the books yet prohibiting black education. They named the vessel the Freedom School, and it would stay there, fixed in the center of the river, with students rowing up on small boats or rafts. Abolitionist teachers saw it as a kind of saving grace, and many traveled all the way from the East Coast, excited to finally continue their work again. 
While young black people were barred from learning pretty much anything at all, another group's education, indigenous Americans, was being approached in a very different way. In order to educate the children properly, we must separate them from their families. Some people may say that this is hard, but if we want to civilize them, we must do that. I remember them taking me away from my mother and uh, my stepfather. And uh, I can hear them telling my mom that uh, that was the best thing for me. The Carlisle Indian Industrial School, founded in 1879 in Pennsylvania, was the model for all federally funded Indian boarding schools that would be established in the late 1800s and early 1900s with the purpose of assimilating indigenous children into white society. This school was founded by a former Union general and soldier of the American Indian Wars, Richard Henry Pratt. The idea came to him when he was placed in charge of a set of indigenous prisoners. It was there that he began teaching English to some of his captives, finding what he considered success, inspiring him to build the Carlisle School and eventually a more widespread program to help save the futures of these potentially great Americans. It may be surprising to hear that Pratt's ideas about this indigenous education and assimilation were considered highly progressive in the late 19th century. How can this be? Because the other popular opinion was to continue on as America had been, shrinking tribal reservations, purposefully destroying resources, and essentially killing off indigenous people at large. This man, Richard Henry Pratt, was a complex person, and the Oxford English Dictionary actually attributes the first recorded usage of the word racism to him in 1902. Quote, Segregating any class or race of people apart from the rest of the people kills the progress of the segregated people or makes their growth very slow. Association of the races and classes is necessary to destroy racism and classism. Pratt wrote that, contrary to the common idea at the time that people of color were mentally and physically inferior, that the races were actually all equal in ability. It was actually the savage cultures that were the real issue. Pratt believed that the Indian problem, as it was commonly known to both sides, could be solved nonviolently with this mass assimilation. To accomplish this, indigenous children were first encouraged and then later forced to sever ties almost entirely to their family and culture to become completely immersed in the world of the whites. Almost immediately, the indigenous boys had their hair cut into crew cuts, a devastating blow to their cultural self-esteem, and then each child received a new white name and an entirely new diet. They were put into stiff, proper clothing, and everything was militantly regimented. All languages were banned except for English, and gender norms were strongly enforced. Girls who had once enjoyed equality and power prior were now reduced to learning only home economics. 
each of their particular tribal spiritualities was corrected, and in fact, so was their very conception of time and space. Punishments could be severe, beatings and confinement for small infractions, and severe abuse of all kinds was continuously reported as these schools replicated themselves across the country. The students were rarely permitted the chance to return home at all, forced in the summers to take jobs helping white farmers. Through this massive national campaign, tribal and familial bonds were purposefully devastated. But, like the floating school, there was an educational resistance. The idea of mass assimilation was not new when Pratt opened his school, and many tribal leaders had already seen the writing on the wall. They had been watching their cultures disappear. In 1809, an educator and member of the Cherokee Nation named Sequoia set out to create his own writing system to preserve his native oral language. For an entire year, he disappeared into the project, neglecting his entire life for a while, right down to his very necessities, actually forgetting to plant any food for the future. His family and friends and the community at large believed the man they knew was coming undone. And after his obsession continued on for another 12 years, he emerged with an entirely new way to read. Instead of the ghoulish letters of the English alphabet, he created a symbol for each syllable. The first person to learn his method was his six-year-old daughter, and before a group of skeptical local leaders, Sequoia asked each to say a word to him privately, which he then wrote down using his new syllabary, which his daughter then read back to the group aloud. She did it perfectly, and then Sequoia was granted the right to continue to teach others in the community. By the 1820s, this project was a sensation among the various regions of the Cherokee people, and by 1825, the year that it was officially adopted, the majority of the Cherokee tribes could read and write in their own language. Many educators and linguists began to think that this syllabic method was superior to their alphabet. Cherokee students were learning to read at a ridiculously accelerated rate, and within a few weeks, they were learning what might take two years for a white English student. It was so successful, in fact, that by 1830, the Cherokee Nation had a higher literacy rate than their European-American neighbors. This syllabic method spread to different tribes, who then created their own versions, and eventually it had international influence. But these Indian boarding schools would nonetheless continue fighting against the work of indigenous cultural preservation until the 1970s, existing through an era where the white youth of America were also learning to be good Americans, too. But first, here's a clip from the YouTube channel, Let's Talk Cherokee, with Lawrence Panther from 2018. Locusts come out after several years. Ole. Ole. Elaski. Elaski. Iju de tiada. Iju de tiada. Iudala. Iudala. Anina go go. Anina 
After America proudly knocked out the German Nazi fascists, a new Cold War villain was emerging, stoked by conservative politicians, culminating in the McCarthy-era Red Scare, which saw the purging of public school teachers who were not teaching a patriotic enough education, i.e. communist sympathizers. In 1954, Under God was added to the required public school Pledge of Allegiance that children across the country were required to stand for, hand over heart, each early morning to combat the atheist propaganda of the godless communists. To prevent communism from consuming the entire free world, there stands but one man. That man is you. Counted among the many Cold War terrors was this new class of not-quite-kids, not-quite-adults known as teenagers, the generation of post-war affluence and suburbanization, money in their pockets, and their cars parked on dark lovers' lanes. They called it the youth problem. The same producers began creating anti-communist patriotic films that showed in public classrooms across America. After finding success, they started to believe that the same format could be used to impart positive values to students through their mental hygiene or social guidance films. Popularity. What is it made of? Let's watch and see what makes people like one person and not another. Hey, Jerry, there's that new girl in our math class. Oh, yes. Her name's Carolyn Ames. She's a swell kid. Why? You know her? Not very well. I wish I did. I don't know what it is, but there's something about her you like. Well, she always looks nice to start with. Yeah, especially when you compare it with some of the weird characters in this place. Yoo-hoo! Jenny thinks that she has the key to popularity, parking in cars with the boys at night. When Jerry brags about taking Jenny out, he learns that she dates all the boys, and he feels less important. More after this. And now, back to the show. As goofy and conservative as these wholesome short films seem to us now, social engineering was a progressive undertaking, utilizing sociologists, psychologists, and doctors. The controversy from the right was that this new public school morality did not explicitly center Jesus Christ. And by and large, conservatives believed that the family and the church, not the government-funded public schools, should be responsible for deciding and imparting American values. It may be surprising, but these mental hygiene films actually reflected the real problems of a complicated teenage existence back to students for the first time. In the 1950s and early 60s, few students really wanted to stand out. It felt vital to children and then teenagers to fit in and be accepted and be popular. And so getting advice on how to be less of a loner or how to act to get the perfect guy was welcome information. 
Frequently, the topics centered on how to follow the popular kids' example, how to fit into gender stereotypes, how to be courteous, well-behaved, well-groomed, how to make good choices while dating, and of course, a warning about how dangerous the world can be. Here's another safety feature. The drinking fountains are safely constructed to reduce the danger of bumping your teeth while you're drinking. And there are no sharp parts of the fountain sticking out in the way of people walking in the hall. Unsurprisingly, these mental hygiene social guidance films present a suburban middle class all-white void, completely ignoring the realities of racial conflict that were burning around them, the mid-1950s fight for the desegregation of public schools. But teenagers who were watching these goofball classroom movies were also seeing the news, which broadcast into the vast majority of American homes. The terrifying mobs screaming and threatening six-year-old Ruby Bridges as she walked into the first all-white school. They saw the beatings at the Birmingham March. They saw their friends leave and die in a pointless war. Shit was getting real, and many young people did not want to be like their parents' generation. With a blank template for what it meant to be a good person in America, they had to make something new. It was 1969, one of the most volatile and impactful years in American history, and while protests raged, a colorful and quietly progressive project was getting ready to make its premiere. With 95% of U.S. homes with at least one TV and access to public broadcasting, educational professionals believed it could be possible to provide new horizons for free education. The cast and crew of our now-beloved children's show Sesame Street were radicals of their time, even if only quietly so, with one of the creators invested enough in civil rights to be investigated as a communist. This now sweet, innocent relic of the past was pretty groovy in its time, pretty artsy, pretty bohemian, and you can hear it in their early work. Wanda the Witch lived somewhere west of Washington. Around her waist, instead of a belt, she wore a worm. Oh, oh, oh you gotta learn. Cops 20. Cops 20. Cops 20. Nature has no favorite nation, color, creed, or occupation. Behind your face, there is a place. Sesame Street was hip as hell, and pretty soon they were incorporating celebrity guests into their skits. Boy, Stevie, you know, you really play good. You, you like play it? so good. Do you think you could teach me something? Please, I got, please. I got, I got something just for you, bro. Oh, yeah? Oh, good, Just good. for you. Just oh, go for ahead, you. go ahead. goes like this. 
But it was also a serious undertaking, and the creators were armed with a hefty amount of research in child psychology that informed the way the show was structured, using modeling, repetition, as well as humor to get kids to actually care about learning. The hope was that accessible education could help equalize the classes and races in education and thus in their future, but there was another benefit too. They could provide black children and other children of color with actual representation, a place they could recognize and role models that looked like them. One of the senior advisors of Sesame Street was a doctor named Chester Pierce, the founding president of the Black Psychiatrists of America. He and his Black colleagues had been pushing for their white colleagues to think about racism not as an issue of the individual pathology of that rare racist, but as a systemic issue that affects all parts of culture and all citizens. In the case of TV, Dr. Pierce was concerned, specifically, about the negative information that Black kids were getting about themselves from regular programming. It was personal, too. Dr. Pierce had a three-year-old daughter at the time, the target audience for Sesame Street. The set of Sesame Street was constructed to look like a neighborhood in New York, and two of the human, non-puppet main cast members were Black, Gordon, a teacher, and his wife Susan, and the other, a nice white storekeeper. The colorful puppet cast, made to keep kids laughing, was made up of such icons as Big Bird, Elmo, Grover, Cookie Monster, and of course, Oscar the Grouch. The first episode premiered on November 10th, 1969 in almost 2 million households, with the most diverse cast ever seen on television, opening with scenes of children of different races playing together. It may sound corny to us now, but remember, this was 1969. As Loretta Moore Long, who played Susan, once said, quote, Sesame Street has incorporated a hidden curriculum that seeks to bolster the black and minority child's self-respect and to portray the multi-ethnic, multicultural world into which both majority and minority children are growing. Just like we see today, there was a pretty intense pushback on this new multicultural education for children, a pushback against Sesame Street. For example, the state commission in Mississippi voted to ban the show from their public station, as the people of Mississippi were not ready to witness such an interracial cast. But the critics would not be able to stop this hidden curriculum of Sesame Street. And in 1972, it was made explicit when Nina Simone sang with four black kids while sitting on a stoop to be young, gifted, and black. To be However, Sesame Street was also controversial in other ways. Latino and feminist groups criticized the stereotypical depiction of Latino and women characters. 
By 1971, though, Sesame Street would take actions and hire Latinx researchers, production team members, and actors. And by the mid-70s, cast members were teaching kids about Spanish words and Mexican holidays, and they were creating stronger female characters. In this way, Sesame Street would continue to grow and change, to update their cognitive techniques as new research came in about how to effectively prepare kids for elementary school. By the 1990s, it was estimated that 77% of kids ages 5 to 7 watched the show at least once a week. This buzz phrase we hear again and again, multicultural education, continued to cause conservative uproars in the 90s and 2000s, especially the inclusion of mentions of homosexuality existing, all of it called liberal indoctrination, the gay agenda, moral decay, an anti-Christian crusade. Through court cases and media outrage, this multicultural education, which included sex ed, continued as a strong heart of our culture wars, as it does today. More so, the conflict is revolving around our collective history, about what kind of American past we want our children to grow up believing in. We have two feuding curriculums, the Black-created 1619 Project that puts its focal point on an unwhitewashed Black American experience. The conservative and former presidential response to this project came with a vengeance in the form of the 1776 Project, a curriculum that promises to teach children the glory of the American journey, as called by Trump a patriotic education. When he attempted to take down the Chinese spy app TikTok, he even floated the idea of turning it into a tool for public education to teach this patriotic past. One that's truly not dissimilar to the one I described in the beginning of this episode, the one that most of us already received. American patriotic education tells us that America has always been the virtuous, valiant land of the free, with a few bumps along the way, but with larger-than-life cardboard cutout heroes that make it all feel all right. In this way, we get slogans like Make America Great Again, with an emphasis on the mythic past. In this case, the 1950s, when technicolor roses were blooming in the suburbs. Scenes just like the mental hygiene films. White, nice, gendered, everyone tight in their place in the socio-political hierarchy. I think part of why both liberals and conservatives feel like they're living in an alternate reality from the other side is precisely because, well, we are. And part of the reason why is that we were taught different histories through different states' decisions on what was appropriate to learn, right down to our very morality. Conservatives' desire to keep patriotic white Protestant culture clean is contrasted by the misguided and allegedly well-meaning white progressives' desire to move the culture forward, while at the same time also marginalizing and oppressing the voices of Black and Indigenous teachers and students who fought to learn and protect a history that both sides at certain times have set out to destroy. 
As we've seen in this episode, and as I hope to convey in every episode of American Hysteria, each and every generation is a complete and utter mess of its time, impossible to simplify, to easily moralize, to create perfect heroes and villains. One side the good side, always, and the other the bad. As if you can reduce our history to one side and another. Because one side or the other in American history certainly does not include everyone. History moves forward in absolute disarray, and the stories we tell about it will never be complete. They can't be. The desire to make easy sense of our past obscures the most important collaborative work of history itself. Finding insight on how to deal with our equally complicated present. The narrative of this massive, multi-century narrative of American history in large part creates the reality of our present and thus molds the culture of the future, the knowledge and even the values of the children who will make that future. It's no wonder it causes the status quo of America to freak the fuck out again and again. There is so much power in the way we tell our story. There is so much power, too, in the stories that we've forgotten, the stories that we've repressed, not just because it's helped us create this sanitized, mythic past, but also because all of it has brought us into the very moment that we're in, whether we know it or not. A year spent shut into a house, the crops wilting in the field, a new language blooming that can never be taken away. A long, hidden curriculum, a defiant steamboat, children pushing their rafts against the current, roundabout, secret walks to school, ABCs scratched into the erasable dirt. With all this possible power, it's no wonder that my little suburban hands became happy crayon turkeys again and again and again, that I once believed, sitting at my desk, that the dream Martin Luther King dreamed 30 years before that day had long come true. It was such a nice story, simple. America had overcome and it had all happened such a long time ago. It was history. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, we'll be talking about social media influencers. We would love for you to become a patron of American Hysteria so you can get access to our exclusive patrons-only podcast called Walk With Me, where I go on different walks and talk to you about things ranging from the philosophy of beauty to mental health to a homophobic encounter I had that really broke my heart. It's vulnerable and fun. You can also share your own walk, too, and that goes up on the feed for everyone to share. It's a collaborative walk. We're going to discover weird things together. 
You can find the link to our Patreon in the show notes, and make sure that you come and follow us on social media too, or leave us a review. It really helps the show out, and it combats people who are super mean. Although I never read the reviews. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound design by Clear Como Studios, research and co-writing by Riley Smith, and co-produced by Miranda Zickler. With voice acting by Will Rogers. Oh, 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 we also have some very sweet merch available at AmericanHysteria.com. Thanks, as always, for listening to our season four. That's one, ah, 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 two, ah, 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 three, ah, 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 four, ah, 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 four seasons. Have a great week. More after this. I have a new podcast recommendation for you, and it's called Everyone's a Critic. And it's a romp through the wacky and perplexing world of online review culture with your new best friends, Jess and Jonathan. Each week they surprise each other with hot takes from your favorite crowdsourced platform, including TripAdvisor, Yelp, and even Google reviews if they're feeling particularly nasty. I pray that they never go read the American Hysteria reviews and share them on the show. But they've covered reviews on everything from a $300 toaster to Mount St. Helens and from airport chilies to Roswell, New Mexico. With original ballads, catchy jingles, and loads of reoccurring bits, every episode is tinged with weirdness and hilarity. In over two years, they've never missed a week. So catch Everyone's a Critic every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts.